Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. You can think of Torah study and any kind of study as um, uh, the shape of an hourglass. Sometimes um, the shape is you start with a wide opening to make a very, very narrow and almost picayune point, and sometimes you go through the narrowest of openings and hopefully it opens up into something larger. We're going to do the latter. Um, you know, I, it, I, I imagine it's no surprise to everyone when I'm teaching anything, particularly Parsha, I have no idea what I'm going to teach until I start studying. It's not like very rarely do I say, I need to teach this topic, I need to find it in the Parsha. Sometimes I do that with a sermon. But I'm teaching, it's kind of good old-fashioned, studying the Parsha, see what speaks to me. So uh, I began to study Parshat Balak, and one root, one, two, or three-letter root stood out to me, depending on how you understand the grammar. And as I poked around, uh, it remained very, very small until all of a sudden the idea that seemed to be um, revealing itself to me. So if you're studying from home, um, first of all, the, the source sheet was in the Shabbat email. But we're going to start with the 22nd chapter of Bamidbar, really the opening line of Parshat Balak. So it's page 894 in Eitz Chaim, but if you have the sheet, you don't need the Eitz Chaim at all. Actually, have an Eitz Chaim near you because there's one verse I forgot to put in the source sheet that we might look at. Okay. So uh, we know the story that's about to unfold. Balak is the king of Moab. Moab, present-day Jordan, crossed the Jordan River. Israelites are, actually, you know, because they're, they're going kind of around counterclockwise from Egypt. They have to pass through the area. And this guy we've never met before, Balak, the son of the bird, anyone? Ben Sipor. I'll be here all week. Uh, saw, um, saw that all that um, Israel had done to the Emirates, meaning saw that this was a, a traveling force that was able to wreak havoc on people on their way. And now we have the verse we're going to focus on. Vayagor Boav. By the way, if you're in my Rashi class, you've heard me say this a thousand times, translations are impossible. Once we translate this verse, the study's over. Like, there's no reason to study it. So I'm going to try to translate it without translating it, right? Moab was gar, gore, gore, something like that. It does not mean here to live like, um, like, like a gare, like someone who lives somewhere. It has something to do with concern. It's translated by the JPS as alarmed. Eh, I don't love that translation. But he was afraid. In the presence of the people. Ma'od, very. Why? Kiravhu, because they were great. What does that remind us of instantly? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was afraid of us because we were getting bigger and, and concerned that they're getting very, very stronger. And he was concerned specifically they were going to rise up against him and conquer him. Okay. And now our verse, our phrase. Yaakov was not only gar, he was katz, right? Whatever Yaakov means, it seems to be similar to Vayagor because it's almost like there's a there's two halves of the sentence with them both saying a version of the same thing, right? And if, if you look at the um, translation, it, it, it tells you that these verbs are, are siblings or cousins. He was alarmed and he dreaded. He was nervous and he was afraid. He was concerned and he was upset, right? These are all shades of one another. The question is, what root does Vayakots come from such that we might translate it as he was afraid of or or had fear of uh, the people of Israel. Anyone think of a Hebrew root that you know? Kuf Tzadi or Kuf Yud Tzadi or Kuf Vav Tzadi? Kayetz? Okay, Kayetz means what? Summer. Anyone know why Kayetz means summer? 
We don't know for sure. Our guess as to why kayats means summer is because it's related to the word kates meaning an end, like an end of the of the season where things might grow, right? Summer in Israel, things do not grow. That's just a guess. We don't some words we just have no idea their origin. So one of the roots of uh, that kai that coats vayakots can mean is an ending. How to plug that in here? I'm not sure. Moab was ended. Moab was nervous about its end. Moab, no, no, Moab dreaded its own end because of the Israelites. Not sure. But you have a basic sense of what's going on. Moab is not uh, happy, and Balak is king. Interesting. Moab is is um, it's it, these are singular verbs referring to an entire people. So it's not that Balak himself was Yagar or Yakats, but as if the entirety of the nation was both nervous and, and dreading it. Okay, look at what Rashi says. Rashi is very, very terse here, um, although there's, there are versions of Rashi, of Rashi that add a few lines, and you'll actually see that on the English side of the text sheet. Katsu b'chayehem. Katsu b'chayehem. They were ending of their lives. They were despising of their lives on its own, unless you know Torah by heart. It's hard to know how Rashi's two-word explanation is resolving the question of what Vayakos Moab is. But if you look at the English, you'll see that some versions of Rashi actually play it out a little bit and say, he is referring to another place in Torah where the root Kates ending, something like that, and Chai, life, come together. What is that? Uh, verse. Look at the next source. If you're if you're from home, you don't have the source sheet. You can open up to Genesis twenty seven forty six. Parshat Vayetze. Uh, Parshat. Um, Vatomer Rivka el Yitzchak. Rivka said to Isaac, her husband, Katsti bechayai. Also very hard to translate there. Something like, I've had enough of my life. I would like my life to end. This is almost the Torah's way of describing suicidal depression. Right, If my life were to come to an end, I'm trying to do it in English that makes sense of the word kates, meaning ending, it would be okay. Why is she so upset? Because of the daughters of chait, the Hittite women, whom her children were hanging around with a little too closely. If, God forbid, Jacob takes a wife from those women, like them, from the people, this, the daughters of this land, Lama li chayim. Why is there life to me? That, if there's anything more focused on self-abnegation than that, I don't know. Why should I have life? So if she's saying, why should I have life, meaning I'm so, I, I'm so sad at the prospect of Jacob marrying one of these women, I'm willing to say, katsti bichayai, almost as if may my life come to an end. If you read that back into Vayikatz Moav, Rashi saying that when Moab said that they were kates, it was as if they're saying they're so afraid they'd rather die than deal with the awful battles about to come, as if Israel was some terrible monster. Far be it for me to <laughs> contradict Rashi, but in context, it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense that this nation with a king would be, make sense that they'd be nervous that the people were coming through. It wouldn't make sense that they were so terrified at the torture that was to come upon them if Israelite came through, that they'd rather die now, right? We can kind of understand Rivka's individual suicidal ideation, but the notion of an entire nation saying, we're terrified of Israel, all these terrible things they've done, kill us now. It seems to be 
but that's the way the Rashi reads it. Um, there's another verse that also relates to this root. This is the 20th chapter of Leviticus Vayikra, if you have for studying from home and you don't have um, a sheet. God is saying, don't follow the statutes of the other nations. Which nation? That I'm going to kind of cast away from in front of you. Ki et kol eile asu, because they did all these terrible things, va'akutzbam. Also, very hard to translate. Hard to translate here is having to do with n, unless what God is saying is that I I ended them, but the form of the verb is not causative, that he's something that God is saying to them, but rather than God is experiencing akuts. It doesn't make sense for God to say, I wish I didn't exist. God would never say that. So maybe here, it has to do with an abhorrence. I can't stand those nations. Don't go after their wa- those ways. If that's what our verse means, then going back into Vayakot's Momav, they, it's not that they were afraid and they would be willing to surrender their lives before a battle. They just hated Israel. They heard what Israel had done to the Emirates and yich, blech, I don't want nothing to do with them. But if that's the case, it doesn't really explain uh, um, Balaam's re- uh, Bil- uh, Balak's reaction to them. But it's possible because we still don't know exactly what the word means. Look at Ibn Ezra, Spanish commentator, a couple hundred years after Rashi. He says something um, which I, I don't, I'll admit to you, I don't fully understand the grammar of it. He says, Kamo hafuch. The verb vayakats is similar to if you switched around the letters. And he gives us a proof text, Kamo, a verse from Isaiah, Naale biyehuda unikitsena. We'll go up to Judah, it's translated here, and we will vex it. We will. We will do, we will upset it. I think what Ibn Ezra is saying is that whether it's Yud Kuf Tzadi, as in Vayakot, or Kuf Yud Tzadi, as in Nikitzan, it means the same thing. The only problem with this, and this is a strange thing for Ibn Ezra to make a mistake on, is that he probably knows that the verb Vayakot, the Yud of Vayakot, is not part of the root. It's part of the structure of the word. So why he's making a proof text here, not sure. But if we go on the meaning, it has to do with vexing, to, to upset. So if you're paying attention, we have three possibilities. Moab wanted their lives to be over. That's the use of Kate's. I don't even want to battle them. I'd rather than I'd rather just commit national suicide. One. Number two, through uh, the verse in Leviticus, Moab felt disgust towards Israel. They were terrified. They're just disgust. Yuck, blech, I don't want them going through my... Or through Ibn Ezra, Moab was, was vexed, was upset. It's a slightly different meaning than the other two. Those are the three that are hanging out so far. Look at Sforno, Italian commentator, 15th century. Vayakots Moav. Hamon Moav katsu b'chayehem. The multitude of Moav, I mean, the entire nation, Hamon means the whole group of them. Katsu b'chayehem also thought their lives were worthy of being ended. Mipnei b'nei Israel because of the Israelites. Hasholalim otam, who were, they feared, about to plunder them about to come take advantage of them. That's, Sforno is, is closer to Rashi than the other ones that are present. Okay, those are the most standard ways of understanding this verse, right? Moab was terrified. Moab thought Israelites disgusting. Moab was vexed by the whole situation. And that's why Balak had to hire Bilam to go curse. Right now, I'm I'm, I'm focused less on the storyline and more on what the verse mean. And I should have said this at the beginning, what is the precursor to um, rational people taking a rational? Because 
I think this Parsha is addressing that if we look, if we think a bit, not only in terms of what happened to the Israel, but why the Torah is, you have a nation called Moab and out of nowhere, they feel the need to curse entire people. And what causes an individual or a nation to start acting and have irrationality overcome ration? Okay, so fear is one of them. And, and so fear is one of the things that we have uh, made, uh, brought out here in terms of Yaakov's. But I would ask on that, what, like, what causes the fear such that, like, once fear is present, it's hard not to act irrationally. But what is in the system that might be actually engendering that fear? Look at the next source. This is Bamidbar Rabbah. This is the classic rabbinic midrash, agadic storyline midrash on the book of Vehayu Elu Roin et Artsam. This is referring to the Moabites. They saw their nation, Biyad Yisrael. This midrash is imagining that the Moabites sort of had a, a bit of a prophecy, a bit of a, of a foreshadowing. <laughs> they all, as they had, they had a kind of a mutual hallucination. All of a sudden, they saw Israel at their border and they imagined that Israel had already conquered them. Vehayu Omrim. And they would say to one another in their ner nervousness, Lo Amar Lehem HaKadosh Baruch Hu, did not the Holy One say to them, quote, Ki lo eitein lecha me'artso Yerusha? I got to break this down. First of all, this is a wonderful Midrashic <laughs> imagination. Not only does the Midrash imagine that the Moabites know the Torah by heart, such that they are quoting to themselves what God said to Israel, but this comment, this phrase of Ein Mugdamu Muchar Torah, there's no chronology in the Torah. The Moabites are quoting a verse from Deuteronomy, which hasn't happened yet. But let that game happen. I didn't bring that verse, so open up to uh, chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, verse 9. This is the opening of Harshat, second, second chapter of the book of and the Parsha of Dvarim. In the Eitz Chaim, it's uh, 991. Oh, I forgot to mention the most famous kates, meaning end. Uh, and I forgot to put that in the story sheet also. When God tells Noah that he's going to destroy <laughs> the earth, kates kol basar balafanai that an ending of all life and flesh is going to come to the, uh, the world. So in that situation, Katz Kates means an ending um, without question. What's going on here? Moshe is rehashing the Israelites' experience through the desert. Inside the Midrash, the Moabites are quoting the rehashing that Moshe hasn't yet given. So it's a time machine. Start uh, reading from verse 8. Moshe is saying, we passed out of the land of our brethren, the children of Esau. Interesting that they're to his brethren here. I mean, they are, but as, almost as a, um, a sympathetic thing. Who were dwelling in the, in the area of Seir. In the pathway coming up from, uh, imagine it like north of Eilat. From that town of Eilat up into that area. We turned and we passed. Derech Midbar Moab. We have passed by the uh, wilderness of Moab. So Moshe in our, in this verse is reminiscing about what we're experiencing real time in Parshat Vala. Vayomer Adonai Eli. God said to me, Al Tatsar at Moab. Don't trouble the Moabites. Very interesting verse that the Moabites are quoting, right? Just to remember what's going on here. In the Midrash, the Moabites are saying, we know what God said, except that it's a will say. We know what God will say. God is going to tell the Israelites not to bother us. We were supposed to be free of the Israelites. But Altit Garbam, God says, don't disturb them. Milchama with a war. 
I'm not going to give you any of their land, Yerusha, as an inheritance. It belongs to the children of Lot. That area belongs to them. In the Midrash, the Moabites are going crazy because they know that the Israelites are not supposed to be taking over this land. God is not promising them, but they see in their hallucinations the Israelites massing on the border and it's as if they've already conquered and therefore all of reality is thrown out of whack. Out of, out of whack. They're terrified and they're terrified in an irrational way. They say, back in our source, the Midrash, didn't God promise that he's not going to give us, give our land to them? But they're right there. They're on the border. God's promise maybe doesn't mean anything. Maybe we're not safe from the Israelites. A totally irrational fear. Therefore, they were afraid. And now we have our verbs. And now we have my favorite of the root. Vayakots Moab. Moab was katzed. Shehayu ro'in et atzman. They saw themselves kikotzin bifnehem. Not katz verb ending, but katz coats noun. What's a coats? A thorn. It's a very interesting uh, 2000 year old psychology. We're nervous that we are not going to be able to appease this nation coming. We're nervous that we're going to be thorns on their side. We're nervous that they're going to see us as just dispensable. What do you do with a thorn? You pull it out and you stomp on it. They had a sense of themselves as being small and irrelevant and unneeded by this grand nation coming through. And as a result of that, they went into an irrational fear and that irrational fear pushed them to attempt unsuccessfully because God intervenes, managed the whole thing, to curse the Israelites into oblivion. So one side's fear that the other is not going to need them and dispose of them invites that side to want to do the annihilation of the direction, mutual destruction. If you've lived through the Cold War, you ever spent a night in your room wondering which premier or president was going to wake up and determine that we, just, that we are just thorns, thorns first and dispense with them first. And that's, you know, war, war games, Matthew Broderick and the end of humanity, right? Which probably, remember what was the doomsday thing? Like the doomsday clock at one point we were at like 11.45 PM or something like that because of, of all of the, of the ways in which individuals and nations were certain that the other one was about to annihilate us because they thought that we were just the uh hamek davar the last source the netziv from my... please yeah oh the the verse from uh deuteronomy right yeah right. <laughs> yes same root as same root as al garbam right and they and yet they got yagard right so 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 that's also part of this this like negative fantasy where the Moabites are saying, they told, God told Moshe to not allow us to be yagard in front of them, but we're terrified anyway. Correct. Don't give them any reason to think that you think so small of them, such that they will have an irrational fear and think the exact same way to you and try to curse you into blue, right? Almost, it's almost as if <clears throat> the whole Parsha didn't need to happen because God wouldn't have to use a mercenary prophet like Bilam and get the donkey to talk to stop the cursing if there hadn't been uh, the, in, the initiative by the King Balak to curse the Israelites in the first place, and why did that happen? According to the Midrash and according to the source we're going to read in a second, the Israelites had something to do with it. This was an irrational fear by Balak, 
but that was some, somehow brought up because the Israelites were acting in such a way that made Moab think we are nothing to them, we're thorns. Right. And, and already, if you have it in your head, take it from nation to person, right? Because nation, there are, there's, there's artillery and, and, and weaponry and mass bloodshed. Person to person, what does it mean to hold yourself in such so that the other person will never think that you think of them as a thorn that if it's near you, it's causing you pain? Because that's how relationships or worlds end. Look at the Nitzvah, we'll end with this. This is Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, his commentary in the Torah called the Ha'amek Devar, deepening the issue. Um, and it's actually, it's from him that I got this read and then I went back and found the Midrash. Bayakots Moav Mipnei Bnei Israel. Same, it's the same quote. Hain Hema Chashuvei Ugdolei Israel. I think something interesting here. That Moab had this reaction to which Israelites? The, the most important and the greatest of the Israelites. They weren't responding to like just the person on the street, but they had this sense in their mind about how <clears throat> the leaders of Israel felt about them. Shalo yaru mehem They weren't afraid that those Israelites were going to do something bad to them. Ki ein derech adam gadol A dignitary, a dignified person is not going to directly act evil, according to this read. Avalhit bonanu bigdulatam. But Moab looked closely. Excuse me. Excuse me. But the uh, but Moab hit from the word tivuna. They investigated. They 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 um they looked closely. They understood deeply. Bigdulatam, in the greatness of these Israelite dignitaries. The way that it's is reading it, it's not that Moab was concerned that the Israelites were were Russia invading Ukraine ruthlessly and uh, killing wantonly, but rather that in the presence of Israelites and the great ones, they thought of themselves as nothing. Does that remind anyone of anything? Of, of, of any verse in the Torah? The spies. Spy. Say more, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> Grasshoppers, right. So, so the spies a couple of parshas ago, their mania is that they saw the residents of Canaan and saw them as giants. And when you think you're in the presence of a giant, the bigger they get in your imagination. Have you ever had that experience where you're in the presence of someone's greatness or expertise or ability, and you almost feel yourself getting smaller and smaller, and they aren't doing anything to you. It, it, your, sen your sense of self can sometimes reduce in the presence of someone else's greatness, particularly if they're great in something that you aspire to be great. And it can happen you know, on the basketball court, right? It can happen, uh, you know, when you're cycling and something's going on ahead of you. Or, uh huh. Yeah. Right. So, so jealousy is would be the second level. The way the Nitzvah is reading it, that the that this begins with your sense of feeling small compared to someone else. Let's finish reading it. Shahayu nechshabim ba'atzmam kekotzim. They thought of themselves as thorns, so that we read the phrase vayakots moav moab thorned themselves. They looked in the mirror and they saw nothing. They saw these Israel holding themselves upper, grand, grandiose way, more than normal people. What the Nitzid does there is not a small thing. He's blaming this entire episode on the, the Nitzid here in this last line is blaming all of Parshad Balak on whom? No. Whom, but who's responsible? 
the great haughty Israelites who walked in with their fine robes and their sense that they're in the Sanhedrin already and they have a direct relationship with and they have a direct relationship with God and in their carrying of themselves with Gedula, the reaction of the Moabites was not, oh, we're in the presence of good and fine people, we're okay. They were, we're in the presence of people who are on a different level than us. We must be Kotsim. We're about to be eliminated. I think there's a, I have no idea if this is the right reading of the Parsha, but I think it's a, but anytime you read a comment like this, you're observing a sage essentially give a sermon through you know, a, a particular small hole in the Parsha. And the sermon here that I imagine that it's of giving is, when you carry yourself with a certain greatness, and there's nothing wrong with being dignified, there's nothing wrong with, being, with having a certain kavod and honor, you run the risk every single time of having a potential Moab in your midst, who in the presence of your gdula does not get raised up, but gets brought down. Sometimes you're not even aware of it. And it's not even all, all your fault. Sometimes it's in the mind of that person. But to not be sensitive to it risks their um, responding to their own smallness in your presence by acting out against you, by trying to curse you, by trying to eliminate you. Person to person, party to party in a country. Um, what I liked about this is, first of all, it goes against the pshat, right? Because very few people read Vayakot's having to do with anything other than the three initial words we had, like ending, abhorrence, and, uh, and fear. And because he's trying to get at uh, why this odd story, which spends most of the Parsha dealing with someone outside the Israelite camp, is present. And I think he's reading it as a cautionary tale. We might be all the time, B'nai Israel, walking through other people's tent. And how are we holding ourselves? And how are we making other people? And what might them make, what might that, and getting to us before we even. So uh, I, I, I was appreciative of the Hamechtavar um, for taking this tiny little Kates and opening it up into a really, I think, grand discussion about what our relationship is with other people, even especially as we are in a place of pride and self uh, comments or reactions. You know, Yes, I, 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 I wasn't trying to get into grand themes in, in, that are problematic in American culture right now, although that's worthy of discussing. Um, but I, but if look at, try to look at your next few interactions with another person and see if as a result of it, you hold yourself slightly different. If you hold your sense of self in the presence of else who might not feel as you feel about you slightly differently, are you inviting them into rather than lording over them, even, even in a gentle way that might lead themselves. And once they feel that, what Deborah was saying is that it's a fine line because if we take this scene out of it, what's wrong with Israel? Walk, marching through the desert in their finery, each tribe you know, arrayed the way they're supposed to, proud of carrying the Mishkan, what's, what's wrong with that, right? Um, I think it is a fine line. If, if you want to connect it to something more modern, right? I think. Every, I mean, and we're, we're all guilty of this, right? So I'm, I'm gonna say a, a general comment, but we're, we all play into it. Every time we Facebook eyes or Instagram eyes, our perfect, our perfect kids, perfect graduation, on some level, what's wrong with sharing with the world and the people that we're having, that we're doing okay? The problem might be for the people who are not doing okay, that could be a taunt, not an intentional taunt. It could be a, 
it could be a tease and it could be sending them into a spiral that leads to negative outcomes. So it's a fine line. There's no one, um, I mean, most of the times, as, as you know, when I teach a tradition, I, I rarely end up um, with, with, a, with a straight conclusion. It's a tension. It's a tension between, the tension goes back to uh, something in the C-Door. We'll end with this. Open up the C-Door to, um, from the Lev Shalem in, in Birkot HaShachar. Uh, no, in the Lev Shalem it's... So open up your Sidurim to page... Um, yeah. Okay, 105. This is exactly the tension you were talking about, Deborah. In the very, very early part of Birkot HaShachar, uh, so, you know, on Daily Minion, this is, we get to this at 7.30 and a half, and Shabbat morning, we get it at 9.16. We're talking about our humility in the middle of the, in the, middle of the page. Ma'nachnu, <laughs> what are we after all? Ma'chainu, what's our life worth? Ma'chasteinu, what's our, 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 our grace? Ma'tzitkenu, what's our merit and our righteousness? Ma'yishenu, in what way do we actually even deserve deliverance? We are nothing. Kichom ma'senu tohu. All of the things that we do is as if they are void. We are nothing compared to you, God. We are, we are void and vapid. And the advantage that a human being has over an animal is nothing. Right? So we're nothing. Right? We, we hold ourselves a sense of appropriate small. But God, but we're your people. B'nai Vitecha, the children of your covenant. B'nai Avraham, we're the children of Avraham. We get to puff ourselves up. We get to walk through the world with a sense of pride and standing up tall, standing up straight. We get to walk through the desert and passing by Moab and say, hey, we're Israel, we're on a mission. So somehow we have to find a, a, a way to both feel good enough about ourselves as individuals and as a nation that we're able to benefit from the pride that we have and do it in such a way that other people don't feel like thorns. In our and I think that's the ongoing challenge of the Jew, perhaps for every human being. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.